Hi everyone, and welcome again to another ECICN Next Educational Podcast. My name is Ahmed Zahir. I'm a senior clinical fellow at Oxford University Hospitals and an ECICN Next Committee member. Joining me today, Dr. Denise Batellini, who is a Next Elect Committee member and a Next member of the Translational Biology section. She is a consultant in intensive care at San Martino Hospitals in Genoa, and a PhD candidate in translational medicine at the University of Barcelona in Spain. We will be interviewing together an international expert in his field, Dr. Martin Osuchowski, who is a Polish scientist working in Vienna, Austria. Martin currently works in the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute for Traumatology and acts as the head of intensive care research over there. Martin is a veterinarian by profession with a PhD in pharmacology and habilitation and pathology, what nicely aligns with his expertise in the intensive care translational research. He received numerous awards, including Best Young Investigator Award in the US Shock Research. Martin's research interests include immune inflammatory responses in sepsis and trauma, improvement and standardization of sepsis trauma modeling. He recently led a team of experts who developed international consensus guidelines known as minimum quality threshold in preclinical sepsis studies. Martin is a member of ECICM and actively participating in the translational biology section of the ECICM and serves as a deputy editor-in-chief of the ICM journal. So, Welcome everyone to our educational podcast program. Welcome to everybody. Hello, dear listeners. Hello, guys. So, uh, Martin, let's start with the first question. Why should the intensive care medicine care about preclinical translational research? Oh, there are numerous reasons why they should care. And I, I mean it. It's, it's really important that people may not be fully aware, especially clinicians who are uh, immersed only in a clinical type uh, of research, but um, preclinical research brings many, many benefits. So, you know, there are a number of things starting from development of new surgical procedures or training purpose, but that's more sort of hands-on experience. But then you can start with very early, very basic stuff by trying to test a new seminal hypothesis that you have um, came across or you just uh, constipated based on your activities in the intensive care research. Then you can look at preclinical efficacy verification of new or repurposed medications. So we have numerous examples um, nowadays in the COVID-19 field. You can test and try to come up with different uh, new diagnostic measures. And I think one of the most important elements in all this, especially in the context of what we want to promote in our new transbio section, is support development of clinical trials. And not only in the context of whether something actually translates, but also the negative end of it. So in other words, to support the go-no-go decision-making for development of of testing substances in clinical trials. So clearly there are other uh, uh, 
you know, reasons apart from that, uh, the, what, what I have said, including that you can hook up and connect with new kinds of people, right? Not only your colleagues from the clinics, but people who think in maybe in a bit different way or do the work that is not typically known to you. So I, I think it's also a, a nice, um, a nice enrichment element in all this. I hope this answer this answers your question, Denise. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for your answer. So next uh, question from Hamed. Thank you so much for the for the for the answer. It was really impressive. So Martin, can you tell me please, or could you give me some successful translational examples to highlight the impact of preclinical research on clinical practice in ICN, i.e., personalized person such as personalized therapies in ARDS, phenotypes, and so on. Right, so before I give you examples, I wanna bring up something before that. So you, you are, I'm sure, many of you have heard about the really bad translation from preclinical research to, to clinics, right? And, and mostly mm -hmm. this is the animal research is blamed for that, right? That the animal models do not really work and there's such a poor translation that, that we do not really uh, uh, should care about this, right? I, I think it's, I think it's, not right. I think it's unfair. And often there is this 90 to 10 ratio example used that you know only 10% of the animal research translates into uh, into clinics. So hypothetically, considering even if even the 10% was true, which is not because there is much more, so 30 up to 40% translates and depending on the field. But even if this 10% includes some revolutionary treatments or improvements, think about diabetes, right? Insulin against diabetes. That was a long time ago, but it's a revolutionary treatment. So even if now and then something translates so successfully, I think, I really think we should not abandon this type of research. But to give you more contemporary examples, uh, since Denise is with me and she is a specialist in um, um, mechanical ventilation, she is well aware of being part of also Transbio Group that Ely, so uh, ventilation-induced lung injury um, topic is has been very much uh, supported by uh, preclinical research and so animal modeling to be specific and both in in, in small uh, and large animals. So that includes uh, mice and, and pigs. And there are, th this includes both mechanical and non-mechanical forces research. And there are many different sort of findings that keep improving our understanding of, of Vili. So for example, recent, uh, recent papers uh, disclose that recruiting pressures that are increased gradually are better tolerated than, than uh, their abrupt implementation and, and things like that. Another uh, great example of understanding pathophysiology of certain processes comes from my own domain, so sepsis. So for example, um, a depletion of lymphocytes, so CD4s, are, uh, undergo rapid apoptosis and severe apoptosis in, in uh, septic patients, and, and that actually was discovered with a seminal work of Richard Hartius from, from the US who uh, demonstrated this, this phenomenon in mice. I dare to 
bring up another sepsis example from uh, my own uh, uh, of my own making uh, the release or the sort of dynamics of cytokine uh, release in septic patients so people have for a long time have thought that that cytokines are released sort of in a, in a wave sort of like first you have pro-inflammatory and then as a as an um, sort of reaction to the pro-inflammatory then you have a release of anti-inflammatory cytokines. So in sepsis, actually, this happens at the same time, pretty much. And uh, we show that in a series of, of uh, papers in mice uh, called as um, like sepsis or always in Mars, so mixed anti-inflammatory response syndrome. And that was two years later that was um, uh, repeated or replicated in, in actually in, in human patients. In terms of in terms of drugs, and if we stay within the uh, intensive care domain or critical research domain, think about COVID-19. I mean, that is an excellent example of how well treatments can be supported by wisely designed uh, preclinical research. And I'm, again, I'm talking more about animals here. If you think about, and, and this is not only in terms of what translates, but what, what is equally important in my, in my opinion is what does not translate. So if you if you think about uh, HCQ, so hydroxychloroquine, right, it was a, such a great hype, and many people were actually exposed to this treatment. And so if you look at the at animal modeling of COVID nineteen, HCQ actually never turned out to be uh, effective in in animal models. As a positive example, uh, studies in non-human primates, uh, ferrets, hamster in a mouse showed that monoclonal antibodies, so think Regeneron, right? That is now one of the treatments that is given to COVID-19 patients, works very well. And so all four species in which this drug was tested uh, showed that the positive effect, right? So I, I think there are really countless more examples. So I, the take home message sort of from this answer is that guys do not believe do not believe this negative publicity that animal uh, models or preclinical research does not translate. Of course, it's impossible that everything translates, but there is enough of a good research done that successfully translates in a positive sense. So yes, drugs go ahead and then their uh, or techniques or, or, or diagnostic uh, approaches or tools are effectively used later on. And, but also, preclinical research provides warning signs, right? So this sort of like a stop uh, uh, decisions can be made, you know, no, we don't want to uh, proceed with that because there is enough uh, uh, data showing detrimental effects of a procedure of a drug. Okay, so yeah, I, I think I need to stop here because I can go on. Um, and that's, so that's... We, we need to restrain ourselves or I need that's... to restrain myself a bit. I would say, can I, so thank you so much. That's really, that's really impressive. And giving more examples will give us more insight about what can be translated and what can't be translated. Thank you so much. Denise? Yes, so Martin, the next question is more about uh, your career. What brought you personally to translational research and what do you, do you like most of it? Yeah, so yeah, I'll try to keep it short. Uh, 
Um, it was a gradual process. I first, um, when I graduated from the vet school, or still as a student actually in my alma mater in Poland, I started working with pigs in a in a team, and it was it struck me then how how similar pigs are to humans, you know, anatomically and and sort of physiologically. It was sort of the first trigger I remember in my head. And then I got a scholarship. I went to work in the U.S. and I worked with models uh, with mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. And then I um, did my PhD in the field of toxicity. And actually, funny thing, I used a mouse model to model a, a different disease in another animal. So being a horse, like Luco, Luco and Tephalomalacia caused by Fumonazine. And so I that caught me again sort of the, the, this modeling, you know, translational thing. And then I made a very smart decision to go and work with Dan Remick in, in Boston, in University of Michigan uh, on our board, who is an expert in sepsis and translational sepsis. And I basically, yeah, and I, once I started doing that, I, I was totally hooked. And so all the, you know, all the other decisions that I made career-wise were um, in the direction of this translational uh, research right from from bench to uh, bedside or rather from animal facility to uh, to bedside what i like the most about it two things one is obvious right i mean we can produce stuff that will help us understand not the physiology of a given disease so in my case sepsis or polytrauma and so in in the end that uh, you know we believe that this little brick that we that we contribute to the wall of understanding. Maybe the wall is not the best uh, parable, but uh, a piece of a puzzle, right? To the, to the big puzzle, and we, we help. And then consecutively, you know, all the knowledge that that streamlines into this puzzle then helps us to helps the clinician. So you, Denise, and and you, Ahmed, to come up with better treatments or better diagnostics. And there is another thing that I love actually a lot. That you do this research and then there are moments sometimes that you look at the data and you and you think darn i think no one has ever done that before or no one has actually seen this kind of a reaction or a thing so you know you're looking at this data with your team and you say wow this is so cool you know we really want to share it with the others so it's this this inner joy actually of, of doing research and and also the third thing in, in a way that I love working with others. So I, I don't like to constrain myself to just working on something, you know, of my own, but I love connecting with other people. And, and I, I think it, it enriches us on so many levels and makes also uh, science better. Thank you. That was an amazing answer. Um, yeah. So I think many people after listening to this podcast, you will be really interested in in translational biology because it's it's quite an impressive journey. So from a pragmatic perspective, Martin, if I want to organize a preclinical study, from where should I start from? The so the, the most pragmatic answer, if you have if you've never done that, we have zero experience, you need to find someone who has this kind of an experience. Clearly, there are a number of, of steps that you have to uh, fulfill, right, in order to meet the criteria that are required from you um, or from your lab 
to be allowed to do animal research. And so you have to do the Thalassa uh, authorization. So to be able to be allowed to work with, that, with the animals, you have to, of course, join different kinds of courses and, and, and trainings. You need to understand what the 3R rule is, right? So the, the replacement, refinement, and, and re reduction, replace, refinery, reduce, right? So 3R. And then you need to familiarize yourself with, with those uh, prepare guidelines and arrive guidelines. So basically a very specific tools that will help you from the get-go to make your things right. Because you know there is no way you, you'll make everything right. I mean, if you're a rookie, you, you're, you, everyone makes mistakes, right? And so there is no way you can avoid it, but you can definitely reduce it, right? And, and so while you're doing everything that is required um, of you by by the law and the current and the current uh, EU directive, or if you work in the U.S. or other countries uh, by the local um, regulatory boards, you definitely uh, get in touch with someone who knows this. And we, for example, using our institute, we are very very specialized in in critical care modeling, but also regeneration. So we do we work with many different models and we we often very often train people uh, officially or sort of you know we just you, we advise them you know and sometimes they come and, and do things with us or observe us how we do it so i cannot under stress this element right so find someone who does this kind of work and since we are a community you i'm sure you can you will find someone who does it and who will gladly help you to to deal with that so do not go with, do not go alone into this right if you go alone you will run into many problems if you if someone supports you there is a very good chance that you'll be uh, very successful with, with what you do I, I hope that, that is I don't want to create the impression that it's so hard I mean it's difficult I mean, everything's difficult once you know it once you know it it's simple okay so with that positive outlook I want to leave you if you guys want to do this kind of research do not be afraid okay come talk to the right people and you will be just fine. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. So Martin, uh, as you explained before, often preclinical models cannot reproduce the complexity of humans and the timing, for example, of induction and development of disease is predefined or uh, we have the influence of uh, host factors, genetic variations uh, and biological phenotypes is not possible in clinical trial. So my question is, uh, can we justify using mortality as an endpoint in preclinical experiments modeling clinical illnesses like uh, sepsis or RDS? So th this is a very touchy-feely question, Denise, and you know it because you're part of the Transbio group as well. So, you know, I don't, not sure to what extent I can say that my opinion represents the opinion of the Transbio, but I think to, to an extent it does. So I am, in my personal opinion, mortality as an endpoint is absolutely a crucial element in preclinical modeling. So clearly, again, we go to, we talk about animal research because you know you don't talk about uh, mortality in, in, in cell research. So why is it important? I see two main elements why mortality is justified in, in preclinical research. First, we are within the critical care domain. 
right? So if you think about septic shock patients, or if you think about polytrauma patients, some of them die, right? The mortality, of course, varies, but you know, from 10 to 50%, depending on, on, on the scenario, environment, and, and uh, other var variables. So, you know, if you think about that on the, on the basis on using basic logic, how can you recapitulate a disease that has a certain level of mortality when you are using a model that is 100% survivable? I mean, it's just, it just does not match, right? So you would think, yeah, you know, I want to be so humane that I will use this, you know, light sort of like, quote unquote, light burden model to, to simulate or recapitulate the disease with a very high mortality, you know, because I'm such a humane scientist. And then you getting yourself into a dead end corner because the data you, you, you produce very likely will not correspond to what you're trying to recapitulate. And there are numerous examples of, of this, numerous examples that, if you, you really, we need to really um, cause a similar level of damage, or sometimes even, or a burden, right? In order to reproduce what, what you guys, clinicians, see in your patients. So that's reason number one. The second non less important reason is that if you use mortality with all its sort of ethical, of course, problems and, and uh, uh, on specificity, it may be perceived also as a very good advantage in, in, a, in, a, in an experiment because you test something new, right? So you don't know what's going to happen. You may have a hypothesis, you may, you, you may assume, you may predict, you may hope, but in the end, something happens that is uh, not predicted. So animal, animals die suddenly, even though they shouldn't, or they are survive, even though you do not expect that. And so it, it goes in both directions. So you, you, in other words, you see a very strong effect. You may not immediately understand why it happened, or you may suspect, but see something happen. Okay, something big happened because if you see a lot of mortality or a lot of survival, then clearly there is a biological effect. And often, if you look at preclinical animal-based papers, you see that uh, people report certain changes right in various parameters be it a you know organ function parameters right something changes by 30 percent so you see an improvement right of liver function or kidney function and you are tempted to say that this kind of a magnitude of an improvement or, or a change will translate into better survival right but sometimes it's absolutely not true sometimes uh it's just the effect that you see on the level of markers that you measure, even though it's statistically significant, so I'm not taking it from you, but biologically speaking, it has no effect, or when you think it shouldn't, when you think it doesn't have an effect, it actually has a huge effect because of some other factors that you have not yet understood. I know it's a bit lengthy, but it's an important point, the mortality, so, so I, I really want to hammer it down, you know, that you, you sort of think about that, even if you're against it, that you may, you know, reflect upon that. So in, again, to sum it up, yes, I, I think we should not go away, uh, uh, away from it. Moving to another important pragmatic perspective, which is ethics. So ethically, ethically speaking, 
what is the current climate for preclinical research, especially regarding animal-based experimentation? Yeah, so yeah, the, yeah, this is a very tough issue. You, we see it, we know it, especially those who have some contact with animal-based research. They, they see how it's gradually, the atmosphere has been thickening, I would say. It's, the atmosphere is absolutely great for NSL-based modeling and, and research. There's no doubt about it, but it's getting worse and worse uh, for, for animal um, type of work. And I think we as a community, so intensive care community widely spoken, we are, effect, we are especially affected because if you think of percentages, the higher burden or non-survival models are, are the smallest part of animal-based research. So they are roughly 17, 15% based on the, the newest EU um, uh, statistics. But this sort of the, this kind of research, the intensive care type of research causes the most controversy, right? Because there is this high burden, there's no survival, mortality is an end point, right? Part of it. So there is a lot of there is a lot of bad publicity. Part of it is is unfair. Part of it is uh, absolutely distorted. And so it is used. Um, against scientists, and there are numerous examples, I don't want to go into details, but there are numerous examples of actually studies being legitimate, approved, ethically accepted studies being uh, stopped, right? But if you, if you look at polls, for example, in the EU or in the US, there is a gradual lack of acceptance, ethical acceptance for using animal models um, in, in, in research, so roughly from, from uh, 40% and a 20%, uh, so I'm talking about lack of acceptance to up to 60 or 50% right now. Interesting though, there is a, there is a silver lining from, from my perspective to it because the COVID-19, I think has, has shaken up the, the, the public opinion a little bit. And there is a lot of uh, good publicity on how animal modeling is helping. In, in understanding COVID-19 and in development of treatments and also, uh, also vaccines, right? Each vaccine currently accepted, uh, um, approved for use in, in the world has been pre-tested in various uh, uh, species, mostly non-human primates, but also mice and hamsters. So, and there, there is a already, a, it is reflected in the newest polls that were taken uh, uh, during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And a surprisingly high number of people or a large proportion of people agree that animal models are used if, if humane elements are incorporated into the study designs. And, and there was a, I'm not sure if you know, there was a recent, uh, there was a recent referendum in Switzerland, uh, Switzerland right? Uh, the question was, should we ban the an animal research? What's, you know, altogether? And, 80%, 79% to be exact, of the faults in Switzerland said, no, we don't want this ban because we consider animals useful, animal research useful for, for the benefit of the society. So the situation is not easy, but I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be more and more reason, you know, among people. And also there are now organizations that promote the importance of this kind of research. So, uh, for example, there is this uh, IARA, European research um, uh, uh, organization or 
Um, there is another one. There are a number of organizations in, in England understanding animal research, for example. So they are really doing a great job in promoting that also uh, on a public domain, but also in the European Parliament, for example. So I, I hope for a good outcome, but there'll be, there'll be a long fight, right, to keep good stuff in, in, in terms of quality animal research. Thank you. That's an important question. Thank you so much. I think this will always be a debatable issue and you will always find people who are supporting and you will always find people who are not supporting. Um, I think that was a great answer. Thank you so much. Denise? Yes, I think uh, Martin, uh, this brought to, the, to our last question. So where do you predict the preclinical experimentation to be in 10, 20 years from now? Uh, yeah, clearly it's a tough one because <laughs> you can catch me later on, you know, in 10 years, you can say, oh, you were wrong here, you were right there. Uh, I think uh, uh, if we look at the preclinical research as a whole, I think the 3D organoid cultures and organs on the chip, chip will, have a, will have a great success. And I hope for that because it's a great replacement or partial replacement um, approach to animal research. And I think they're useful. There is a lot of good, um, good publications showing that they are really predictive in the, within their own restrictions, of course. I hope that will, that will come on board and for very common use. I also think, and I hope actually for that, that there will be more standardization in animal modeling meaning that it will be harder to make them in a sense because you'll have to meet you know all those requirements there'll be really a tough scrutiny whether you did your modeling best to the known uh, guidelines or expert uh, recommendations things like that but it will serve us good so i hope the quality will go up which may mean that it will be more costly so not everyone will be able to do it and and we'll have centers that are specialized in that. And so not everyone will do whatever he or she wants, you know, to do with animals, so it'll be tougher. But I, I think the standardization and the quality will increase. It will also sort of also help to convince people that this is a, this is a good thing. And the sil in silico elements, so com computational uh, predictions, I think this also uh, will be helpful. I'm not sure to what, to what extent, because I'm, I'm really not an expert in that. So I, you know, to sum it up, I hope for for three tier of good improvements, right, on the level of, of cell-based research, reduction in animals, but we keep it, but it will be better and more translationable. And then the 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 AI, so artificial intelligence and network analysis based on in silico modeling will also support us. So we see that. That, that that is how I see it. And that that is how I hope. Uh, it will evolve over time. So thank you very much uh, to Dr. Marcin Ozuwalski uh, for answering to our questions. It was great uh, taking to you, Marcin. Yeah, it um, was great, great being asked all these questions and thank you very much guys for organizing that. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you, Martin, for being involved in our educational podcast program. And I think from a technical, from as I would say, from an educational perspective, I think many of the intensivists will have a better insight about the value of translational biology in the intensive care 
research and in their intensive care practice. Thank you so much, Denise, for joining me today. Thank you again, Martin, for helping us with this educational podcast. And have a nice day, everyone. Yeah, oh, bye-bye to everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye, everyone.